and sisters. Turn in your Bibles with me, please, to Matthew chapter 10. This morning, Lord willing, we're going to close out chapter 10, Matthew's Gospel, and just as a reminder of where we've been, uh, Matthew chapter 10 marks a turning point in Jesus' public ministry because um, he's going to take his disciples, who have been pretty much in the background learning, and uh, he commissions them to the office of apostle, and he sends them out on a pre-Great Commission mission, as we've been calling it. And so far, we've, uh, we've seen that commissioning. We've seen his instructions to them regarding their mission. And the verses that we're going to be looking at today, verses 26 through 42, really continue that same subject. But... Um, as we've noticed last time as well, we'll say it again, even though the apostles and their mission is the immediate context of these words, there are times when Jesus says things that go beyond the apostles and their immediate mission and go to the end of the age and include us as his followers and this passage is no different than the previous passage in that respect. And we'll, we'll point that out as we go through. But the overall theme of this passage for today is following Jesus with eyes wide open. And I trust that you'll see what I mean. But let's read the passage together first. So Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 through 42. So have no fear of them, Jesus says, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come, for I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So that's the passage. Following Jesus with eyes wide open, let's uh, look at it in more detail. First of all, in verses 26 through 33, Jesus tells us, don't fear your persecutors. Don't fear your persecutors. He, he says in verse 26, so have no fear of them. And the them refers to um, the wolves into whose midst Jesus was sending his apostles. Um, those who will persecute you, in other words, for your allegiance to Jesus. And this is one of those areas where there's application to the apostles, but there's definitely application to us as well. There's a number of places in the New Testament where Christians are warned about persecution. The Apostle Paul, for example, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So persecution, in some way, shape, or form, is the lot of every single genuine believer in a fallen world. And Jesus' message to us in light of that, the reality of persecution, is have no fear of them. Why not? Why shouldn't we fear those who will persecute us? And he basically gives us three reasons in the following verses. So the first reason is that the gospel message can't be stopped. We see that in the rest of verse 26 down through verse 27. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Basically, the uh, main idea be behind persecution, it's satanic, and the whole agenda of Satan is to silence Christians, to silence the gospel. The, the reason why the apostles were sent out by Jesus and we, by extension, the reason is so that we would make disciples of all the nations. In their case, it was to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But we represent Jesus not just by doing good works in his name, even though that's included, but we're supposed to herald, proclaim the gospel that Jesus 
is the center of. And so the reason why Satan stirs up persecution against Christians is because he wants to silence us. That's what all of this language is about. And um, Christians should not fear their persecutors because their agenda will ultimately fail. They might be able to silence us individually for a time. But the thing about Christian martyrs is that even in death, we speak, not literally, but our testimony for Jesus, the testimony of our lives, our godly legacy will continue to speak of the gospel of God's saving grace. So don't fear them because the gospel message can't be stopped. Then here's a second reason why we shouldn't fear our persecutors. Your persecutors can't ultimately hurt you. That's verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So here's the stark reality. Our persecutors do have the wherewithal to kill us. Church history is filled with the blood of the martyrs. There have been many, many Christians throughout the ages who have given their lives in order to testify of Jesus, and it continues to happen today. Last week, I mentioned the example of a man in India uh, whose own family beat him and then uh, helped a crowd uh, burn him alive to his, to his death. But think about it. In North Korea, in Iran, in Afghanistan, yes, in India, in China, and on and on and on. There are places around the world where if you stand up publicly for Jesus, it will cost you your life. Check out the voice of the martyrs and um, you'll see more examples. But here's the thing. While that's true, our persecutors may kill us. That's all they can do for us. And that's Jesus's word of comfort. Remember, Jesus came to give us eternal life, life that will never end. Eternal life that makes life in this world dwarf by comparison. Life in this world is very, very important because it's here that we testify of Jesus. We represent him. We, we evangelize people. But this life is an infinitesimally small tick on the eternal clock of everlasting life. And Jesus wants his followers to have that eternal perspective. Yes, Christians may be murdered, martyred because of their faith. 
But there's nothing that our persecutors can do to take away our eternal life. They cannot touch our souls. They can't ultimately hurt us. And then the third reason why we shouldn't fear our persecutors is because you are under the sovereign care of God. You are under the sovereign care of God. Verses 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. For some people that job's easier than others. Just saying. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So that's what Jesus says. God's providential care is over all of his creation. He cares for the great aspects of creation and the small aspects of creation, including sparrows, which in that culture was considered a very minor, unimportant living thing. Cheap, cheap life was the life of a sparrow. And back to the hairs on our head. Uh, The very hairs of our head are all numbered by God. Uh, Every detail of our lives and of our persons are numbered. God keeps track of it. God is in control of it. There's nothing that happens to us in our lives that is not within the providence of God. God allows evil people to hurt us to a point. And it's that limit in which God will be glorified the most as we see our weakness, as we desire heaven more, as we desire life in a sinful, cursed world less. But no further than that. God is caring for all of his creation, especially his redeemed children. And so if you find yourself in the crosshairs of persecution, God has you there for a reason. And he's going to be with you. And he's going to make sure that even that will work together for your good. You are under the sovereign care of God. That's why we shouldn't fear our persecutors. But then Jesus closes this section with a warning. Verses 32 and 33. So, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is the thing about being a Christian. Genuine saving faith is not just a private affair. You've heard of closet Christians? Well, according to Jesus, there's no such thing. We're not all called to be apostles. We're not all called to be uh, missionaries to serve in the foreign mission field. We're we're not all called to speak from behind a pulpit even. 
But we are all called to proclaim Christ in some fashion as the opportunity presents itself. As our light so shines before men that they see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. As our, as our hope radiates from us in our communities and people ask us the reason for the hope that lies within us. Somehow, in some way, there will be opportunities for us all to, to speak up and say, well, you know, this is true about me because Jesus Christ has saved me from my sin. This doesn't mean that if there's some wide open door for you to share your testimony and you don't seize it, you, you let it go because of the fear of man or laziness or whatever, and I have those, trust me. Th this does not mean, oh, if that happens to you, you're done. That's not it at all. It's, this is a lifestyle that springs from a regenerate heart. It's the kind of heart and lifestyle that the Apostle describes, the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 10 in verse 9. It's a familiar verse. Uh, if, you, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not just a formula. It's not just a one-time thing. But this springs from a regenerated heart because from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You will say. You, you're not going to be able to help yourself. You're going to say something to the glory of Jesus. And then, uh, so this is a warning. No, no such thing as closet Christians. But even this warning is not without grace. Because who is the well-known person who denied the Lord three times? The Apostle Peter, right? And Peter was one of the 12 apostles named in um, verses 1 through 4. Peter, the leader of the apostles, the um, the one who was so confident that he would never allow anyone to hurt the Lord. He was always going to be there for the Lord. And yet, when the Lord needed him, humanly speaking, when the rest of the apostles abandoned Jesus, so did Peter. And he denied the Lord three times. The third time with cursings. And yet... The Lord forgave Peter. And he didn't just forgive Peter, but he used Peter in the ministry in an even greater way than before. That's how glorious and gracious Jesus is as our Savior. Nevertheless, there is this warning, but don't fear your persecutors. All right? Then in verses 34 through 39, Jesus tells us, your family members may be your adversaries. This is a bucket of cold water. Your family members may be your adversaries. So notice verse 34. 
Do not think that I have come that I have come to bring peace to the earth. In spite of the Christmas hymn, Peace on Earth, Goodwill to Men. I mean, that's true. But there's this other dimension. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. By the way, this is not a literal sword. This is uh, not a call to Christian jihad, which is unbiblical. Remember when, um, when Jesus was being arrested and Peter took a sword and lopped off the ear of the high priest's servant? Jesus said to him, put your sword into its sheath. And then later on, when Jesus was before Pontius Pilate, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And so our swords are not literal, physical swords, but it's a spiritual sword. A sword in the Bible is often used as a symbol of of division. And that's how Jesus uses it here. I've not come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword. Well, who is Jesus coming to divide? And here's where it gets really personal. It comes home, literally. For I have not come, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, obviously, this isn't always the case, thank God. Jesus is describing here a worst-case scenario in terms of our family's reception of our Christianity. The best-case scenario is when everyone in a household gets saved, such as in the household conversions in the book of Acts. And there are several of them, like the households of Cornelius, Lydia, and the Philippian jailer. And I thank God that uh, many of us in our congregation have that experience. And praise God that he sometimes saves entire households. But here's the reality. God has not promised to always save every member of our households. In mixed faith households, like Jesus describes here in verses 35 and 36, we need to understand that our unsaved family members are still in the same spiritual condition that God saved us from. We, we look at our family members and we see their faces and we know their voices and We know their personalities and we love them and we love to be around them even when they're unsaved. And God sees all that and God knows all that 
But God knows the heart. He knows what's deeper than what we're able to see and, and hear. And I'd like to remind you, I'm going to read several passages of Scripture to you. That this describes our natural spiritual condition before God saved us, but it also describes the spiritual condition of our unsaved family members. This is what Jesus is pulling back the curtain on. This is what he's exposing. So for example, Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Before we were saved, we were God's enemies. Romans 8.7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God enmity against God for it does not submit to God's law indeed it cannot Ephesians 4:18 they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart that was us before salvation that's our the spiritual condition of our uh, unsaved relatives until God saves them, alienated from God. And finally, 1 Peter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And Gentiles there means not just non-Jews, but unsaved people, those who are outside of the covenant community. So the, the time that's passed in our lives, that's been enough for us to live like unbelievers do. That's what Peter is saying. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They verbally abuse you. They taunt you. They make fun of you. They slander you. They persecute you. This is what is really going on in their heart of hearts. Thank God that um, most of the time there's common grace at work. God holds people back. He restrains people from being as evil as they possibly could be. But sometimes people's unsaved, evil, anti-God, anti-Christian nature comes to the surface and it gets directed at believers, even their own family members. And so, we are called to be peacemakers. We're not called to be troublemakers. We're not supposed to be argumentative. We're supposed to be good to all. But we're also called to pick a side. 
And that's what Jesus emphasizes next in verses 37 and 38. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is not saying that we're not supposed to love our father, our mother, our son, our daughter, or any of our other unsaved relatives. Of course we are. Jesus is talking about our supreme love. We're not supposed to love anyone or anything more than Jesus. We're supposed to love Jesus supremely. And that means, in the context of um, uh, living with our unsaved relatives, sometimes our relatives are going to want us to go this direction and we want to be a part of the group, but we just can't because Jesus calls us to go that direction. In other words, that's a sinful thing to do. I'm not going to follow you, even though I love you. I'm going to follow Jesus because I love Jesus more. That's what Jesus is saying. We, we must pick a side. And then he goes on in verse 38 to turn up the heat a little bit. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This is the first time in Matthew's gospel when the cross has been specifically mentioned. And so at this point, the apostles have no idea that Jesus is going to meet his death on a Roman cross. In a few chapters, chapter 16, he's going to start revealing that truth to them and he's, he's going to end up telling them three times that he's going to die on a cross, he's going to be crucified. And every time they push back against that revelation really strongly. So they don't get it yet. The gospel that centers around Jesus dying on the cross, but they know enough about Roman crosses to understand what Jesus is saying here. Following Jesus goes hand in hand with suffering for Jesus. Following Jesus means dying to our old way of life. They get that. At least they should get that. And then, finally, in verse 39, here's what's at stake. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Remember that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for our sins. He paid the penalty that our sins deserve. But it's even broader than that. It's more than that. Because the Bible says that by dying on the cross for us, Jesus has redeemed us. He has bought us with a price, the price of his own blood. So yes, he paid the penalty for our sins, but in doing so, he purchased us. 
We now belong to him. Body and soul. Our lives are no longer our own. We are the property. We are the slaves of Jesus Christ. And therefore, our lives now are lived in obedience to Jesus. Our lives are lived with Jesus as our focus. And we know that no one does that perfectly. That's not the idea. But that is certainly the direction. And if you're a Christian, you can bear testimony to that. Before you were a Christian, your life was all about you. It was all about the things of this world. It was about your carnal pleasures. On and on and on and on and on. That was your life. And now that you're a believer, yes, you're like Peter, maybe worse. Yes, you let the Lord down and you sin in many points. But your conscience tells you that you are not living for the same things that you used to live for. You're not living for the world and the things in the world. You're not living for the things of time only. You are living for Jesus. And that's what Jesus is saying. If your idea of Christianity is that you're going to have your best life now, you've missed the point. You're believing a false gospel. And you will ultimately lose not only this life, but eternal life as well. But if you realize that in Jesus, you have everything and you are rich beyond all comprehension, if you are willing to lay down your life for the sake of Jesus, even as Jesus laid down your life for you, then you will find your life. That is the life that Jesus describes as the abundant life. Not short-sighted. It's not satisfied with trinkets and fake riches. It's eternal life. And that sets you apart from your family members in many cases. All right, so your family members may be your adversaries. And then this section is, um, it contains more warning, I suppose, but it ends on a high note with encouragement. In verses 40 through 42, Jesus says that faithfulness to him will be rewarded. So notice verse 40. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So Jesus is describing this heavenly traceability chain. So Jesus himself has been sent by the Father into the world. He is the ultimate sent one. And then Jesus sent the apostles. That's what we're reading about. And then that is going to be developed even more in the Great Commission 
and the, uh, the book of Acts. And then we, by virtue of our exposure to the teaching of the apostles and the power of the Holy Spirit, we are sent ones as well. But the point here is that the ultimate sender is God. And so when people reject the apostles, when people reject us, it's not about us. Who are we at the end of the day? Who cares if people receive us? What really matters is people receiving our sender, God. This is something that God had to remind Samuel about when um, the people of Israel had rejected his leadership. 1 Samuel 8, 7. God said to Samuel, They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. But Jesus goes on here to assure the apostles and us that in addition to rejection and persecution, we would also have the joy of seeing people who will receive us and our message, which is his message. So verse 31, 41. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. What's Jesus saying there? Um, there's a prophet with a capital P. That would be like Isaiah, Jeremiah, the apostles who were organs of special revelation. And then there are prophets with a little p. That includes us. Anyone who speaks in God's behalf. Anyone who speaks the words of God. Jesus is saying that if someone receives a prophet, someone speaking the word of God, because he is a prophet, in other words, because he's speaking the word of God, then that person who believes that message will be rewarded in the same way that the prophet is rewarded. Because if you think about it, both the speaker of the word of God and the hearer of the word of God, if the word of God is preached, proclaimed, shared faithfully, and then received faithfully, it's all about faith in God's word. Faith in sharing, faith in hearing, and there's reward for both. That's what Jesus says. And then he, he continues on in this same vein. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. So prophet is a spokesman, and a righteous person in Matthew's gospel means somebody who is living out the Christian faith in sincerity. Someone who believes and is practicing the true faith. That's a righteous one. Someone who really knows the Lord Jesus. All genuine Christians, the rank and file, all of us have the responsibility to represent Jesus. And when someone receives us, 
because they know that we represent Jesus, then they have the same reward that we do. In other words, salvation. They're going to receive the same gospel that we received. They're going to be declared righteous, counted righteous by the same gospel of God's free grace that we are. And then they're going to be sanctified and therefore actually made progressively righteous by the same Holy Spirit that we are. It's the same reward. And then in verse 30 or 42, and whoever gives one of these little ones, and in the context of Matthew's gospel, little ones um, is a metaphor not to refer to children literally per se. Sometimes this does represent children, especially those children who are believers, but it represents uh, believers who have a childlike faith in Jesus. In other words, um, they realize and acknowledge their dependence on Christ. They're ordinary believers. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water doesn't take much. But they do that because he is a disciple. So there you see these little ones used in parallel with disciple. Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So summing up this passage here from verses 40 through 42, Craig Blomberg, Jesus is saying in three roughly equivalent ways that those who receive his followers because they accept what those individuals stand for will in turn be received by God. That's the point of verses 40 through 42. So let's stand back and look at this discourse from Jesus. And let's zero in on how verse 42 ends in particular he will by no means lose his reward. What reward is Jesus talking about? He's been warning us about suffering and persecution. Total, absolute commitment to him. What's in it for us? I hate to put it that way, but the Bible actually does condescend to us at that level. What about our reward? Well, I read to you earlier from Romans chapter 5. And in Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, the Apostle Paul says that even though we were enemies of God, he has reconciled us to himself through the death of his son. And so we have reconciliation. As a believer, we are no longer at war with God. We're no longer his enemies. We're even not just his friends, even though we are his friends. We're his family, his children, his sons, and his daughters. We've been reconciled. We've been given the promise of eternal life. That eternal life that begins now, 
in character, but extends on into eternity. And it encompasses the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. A renewed, redeemed creation. The whole thing. And it also includes a new family. And this is really appropriate given what Jesus says in verses 35 or yeah, through 37. Look in Matthew chapter 12. So that's the next chapter over, verses 46 through 50. Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother, Mary, and his brothers, which included James, who would go on to write the epistle of James in the Bible, and Jude, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, this is Jesus' reply, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. We're blessed with a new family. And then notice what Mark records for us in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. Mark 10, starting in verse 29. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. It's not all in the future. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands and persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. And don't forget the, the scope of that, by the way. The meek shall inherit the earth. And so all that to say, it is incredibly, unspeakably worth the suffering, the persecution that comes along with following Jesus. Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our so great salvation. And we thank you that you tell us the truth about what it means to represent you in a fallen world. Thank you, Lord, that um, you don't lie to us. You don't try to sell us something that's not legit. You tell it like it is. So, Lord, we pray that having heard your words, that we would respond in faith, that we would obey you, and faithfully represent you in our community and in this fallen world. Would you please help us and empower us to do that 
And would you draw lost sinners to yourself even today? For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.